0: Thank you so much for joining us for Ankeny Gospel Church Podcast. On this podcast, you can find sermons, classes, and other resources that continue to invite us into the mission of Jesus and the journey of faith. We hope this is a blessing to you, and if we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out. Morning, my name is Scott Larson, and today the scripture reading is from Genesis 3.15. It says, I will put hostility between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel." This is the word of the Lord, thanks Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Every year during Advent, I still need a mic, thanks. (laughs) Every year during Advent, our church adopts the tradition of the Advent wreath, lighting one candle each Sunday as we count down to Christmas. The continuous lighting of candles on the wreath throughout Advent signifies the increase of light pouring into the world as Christ's arrival draws near. Lighting the candles one by one over the four weeks symbolizes the posture of anticipation we adopt in this season. The flame of each candle pushes back the darkness, and by Christmas Day, the fully illuminated wreath radiates a brightness to serve as a reminder that the light of the world came to defeat darkness forever and dwell with his people. The first candle of Advent symbolizes hope and begins the season with a spirit of anticipation for the coming of Christ. Let's light this candle now and remember (laughs) that Christ is the hope of the world.
1: Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Kyla. Let's continue this posture of worship as we uh, pray to our Father together. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we rejoice in the truth that you are good. that you are light and in you no darkness dwells. So light of the world, we ask right now that you would illuminate our hearts. Father, we ask that as we enter this Advent season of expectation and hope and peace and joy and love that we would know, we would remind ourselves, we would embody the hope that you have given us. Lord, we know that you are with us in this moment right now. We know that you drew us all here this morning to bring us all together to worship you. Father, you know the thoughts that we had as we were driving in here, we were walking in here. You know the concerns of our hearts. You know our deepest longings when we don't even know our deepest longings. God, you understand our thoughts from far. You you observe our path. You know when we sit down, when we rise up. You you know us completely. God, when we were when we were made, when we were formed in the womb, Lord, it was you that was doing us that was that was doing it to us. God you have drawn us to yourself. Pray that right now, Lord, we would be reminded of your love. We would be reminded that you don't look at us slightly disappointed in us. You don't look at us trying to, waiting waiting to correct us or to prove us wrong. God, you look at us as a father. So Father, we are your children. And we come to you broken and bruised and hurt and distracted and wounded. And as only a father can do, God, we ask that you fill us with hope. You fill us with life, you fill us with love. You fill us with your peace. Father, we ask that you would give us yourself this morning, we pray. And we pray all of this through your Son that made it possible and by the power of the Holy Spirit that prays for us on our behalf. Amen. Amen. If you haven't already, I invite you to take your copy of the Scriptures and turn to Genesis chapter number 3. Genesis chapter number 3. And we are... uh, we are gonna dive in. Before we do though, I, I wanna make a comment on that last song. You are, um, I actually don't know the title of it. Oh, King of My Heart. King of My Heart, I believe it is. Or it's You Are Good. That's the chorus over and over again. The, uh, the uh, writer of that song is named John Mark McMillan and he wrote a song almost a, over a decade ago now called How He Loves. And it's just the repeated refrain of he loves us, he loves us, he loves us. And the origin of that song, not a lot of people know that David Crowder actually made that song popular, but a guy named John Mark McMillan actually wrote it. The origin of that song was John Mark McMillan was with a friend of his, and they were at this youth conference, and his friend, they were singer-songwriters, are already doing it, and his friend at a youth conference said, man, I would, I would die for any of these people to know Jesus. And that night, he got in a car accident, and he passed away. And John Mark McMillan was just shocked. And he was yelling at God, this is his best friend, he was crying out to God, he was pleading with God, God, why, why, why? And out of that grief came this song, that he loves you, he loves us. There's actually a last verse of that song that's not popular and it talks about It says, John McMillan singing to God, and he says, I thought about you, God, on this day that Stephen died. And everybody was telling me that you're cruel. But I know that if Stephen were were here, he would say it's not true because you love us. I don't know who needs to hear this this morning, but God loves you. He loves you, he wants you, he cares for you, he hears your thoughts, he knows your pain, he's with you in those sleepless nights, he's there, he's here, and we live with hope that one day he will make every wrong right again. We live with the hope that Jesus is coming back to swallow up death and victory, to swallow up pain, to destroy death once and for all. The pain that you feel, the brokenness that you feel mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually will be made whole when Jesus comes again. Every wrong will be made right. That's the sermon for today, so uh, that's about it. Just kidding. Actually, it is the sermon for today, but we're gonna get, take the long way to get there now. Uh, every story answers four questions. Every story answers four questions. This is true. Why am I here? What went wrong? What's the solution? And what's the renewed future look like? Every story answers these four questions. Why am I here? What's my purpose? What went wrong? Something has gone awry. What is it? What's the solution? How do we fix this thing that's gone awry and the thing that's gone wrong? And then what does the renewed or ideal or restored or uh, you can use the word utopian future look like? If every, like once the solution happens, what does life look like now? Let me give you an example, the wonderful movie called The Lion King, one of my favorites. We'll just use this as an illustration to answer these four questions. Uh, Why am I here? The main character of The Lion King is this little cub named Simba. And he is here. He's the son of the king, Mufasa. And he is there. His purpose is to eventually one day take uh, his father's place and rule the kingdom and keep the circle of life going and uh, rule over Pride Rock. That's why he's here. What went wrong? Scar. Uncle Scar went wrong. That's what went wrong. Uh, Uncle Scar, not uncle, just Scar. He's not my uncle. He's Simba's uncle. Scar uh, decided to try to usurp the throne, so he killed Mufasa, then he blamed Simba and made Simba like run away, and he was scared. That's what went wrong. And now, uh, now uh, Scar is on the throne, and he's ruining the circle of life, and he's just everything, dog-eat-dog world out there, hyena-eat-hyena world out there. Like, it is just, it's bad. What's the solution? The solution is the long process of Simba realizing that he actually needs to come back to his home, he needs to, the return of the king, right? He needs to come back, he needs to get rid of the bad king, and he needs to become the heir of, the, or he needs to reign as king and claim his rightful heir's throne. What does the renew, and so he does that. He does that, and in the, in the meantime, actually, he finds out that Scar lied and Scar killed his father because he thought he killed his father, and then he, like, attacks Scar, and it's, like, really, really cool, and all the hyenas run away. What's the renewed future look like? Simba and his now queen Nala are on pride rock ruling and everything's happy and the circle of life is renewed and All things are back to normal You see see what we did there every story answers or asks and answers these four questions Why am I here? What went wrong? What's the solution and what is the restored future or the renewed future look like now? What's interesting is that this isn't just for stories like that We read this isn't just for novels or movies or shows or podcasts it is for that But the reason I'm bringing this up is because actually every person believes a story. They live a story. Every person lives in a story, everybody. Whether you know it or not, you ask yourself and you answer these four questions about life, about who you are, what's your purpose, what went wrong, what's the solution to what went wrong, and what will happen if the solution makes its full effect and then we are in a renewed future. And there are quite a lot of stories out there there's a lot of stories that we believe. There's a lot of stories not only that we believe cognitively, but that we actually live out, right? There are stories that are trying to tell us why we're here. There are tr- stories that t- tell us that we try to live into and live out of them that give us the solution, the problem with the world, give us a solution, and tell us what a renewed future would look like. Here's a, I'm gonna give you you some examples now. Here's a few popular stories that we live, not just believe cognitively, but we actually live these stories. Here's a few examples. First, the story of individualism, right? Why am I here? This is what the story of individualism says. The story of individualism says, I'm here to find my true self, to live my true self, to be who I am, to self-actualize project self i need to know who i am and my authentic true self so that i can live that into the world what's the problem question number 2 the problem is is that other people are getting in the way other people tell me how i should live how i shouldn't live sometimes i tell myself how i should live how i shouldn't live repressing who i truly am sometimes past experiences have actually silenced my true self and so i need to go back and figure out what my true authentic self truly is in order to live that out. What's the solution? Doing just that, find myself. Get rid of the voices that tell me what I don't wanna hear. Isolate myself so that I can really know who I truly am. What's the renewed future look like? It looks like a world where everybody acknowledges who I truly am, they submit to who I truly am, they respect who I truly am, and I can just be that person. No conflict, no nothing. If anybody else doesn't like that, then they're the problem, and they just need to get out of the way. It's a story of individualism. What about this story, the story of consumerism? Number one, why am I here? I am here to have all my needs and my, my wants met. I'm here to be comfortable. I'm here to satisfy any desire that I have. Anytime I have this itch or this desire, I just need to satisfy it. I need to consume and get, do it as quickly and effectively as possible. What's the problem? The problem is that I can't get what I want all the time. I don't have enough time, I don't have enough money, I don't have enough resources. And the things that I do end up getting and consuming actually only satisfy me for a little bit, so I need like the next thing and I need to consume that. What's the solution? Get more money, get more time. Click a button and have something on my doorstep the next day. Work hard now so that I can retire, because when I retire, then I can just consume and I can just have all the time in the world to myself and I can do anything that I want whenever I want. And then what's the renewed future looks like? look like? It looks like I have all my wants met. Everything that I'm have i just consuming constantly, and it's great. I have all my wants met. I'm never in need. I don't need to rely on anybody. I'm comfortable for the rest of my life, and therefore, I don't have to live by faith. That's the story of consumerism. We're just getting started here. Next, the story of ambition. These are stories that are out there that we live into and live from. The story of ambition. Why am I here? To get more, to be more to climb up the ladder, to be my own boss, to be everybody else's boss, to seize every opportunity, to take life by the horns. This is the story of ambition. I am here to do this. What's the problem? The problem is competition. There are other people who are also trying to climb that same ladder. There are people trying to build up their own empires, or on the other hand, apathy. Nobody cares. And the story of ambition is I'm here to get, to do, to become so what's the solution? Be better, work harder. Don't say no to any opportunity. Burn the candle at both ends if you have to. Utilize every penny, utilize every opportunity, utilize every scenario. Be prepared and just be better. And what's the renewed future look like? I'm at the top, I've won, I'm successful. Any opportunity or conflict that came my way, I overcame it and I beat it. I, don't, I didn't leave anything on the table. That's a story of ambition answer, it asks and answers these four questions. Last example, the story of death and taxes. I couldn't really think of a better uh, name for this, so we'll just go with death and taxes. Why am I here? Just to, just to keep your head down and work hard. That's it. You're just here to produce and provide and pay taxes and die and just keep the world going around. That's it. What's the problem? What went wrong? All this new age junk about people thinking they're important and they're just complaining and they're just needy and they couldn't do a hard day's work and they don't know what they've got and they're entitled and they think they're the exception to the rule. That's the problem. What's the solution? The solution is just do what you're told. Just keep your head down. Just work well, clock in, clock out, help keep the world go around. Here's the solution. The other day, I kid you not, two days ago, I was driving on I-80, I was past Adel, past DeSoto, and there was this flag, and it said, nobody cares, work harder. That's the solution to this question. Nobody cares, just work harder. And what's the renewed future look like? It looks like a peaceful, peaceful well-oiled machine where no feathers are ruffled, we just keep working, we just keep making the world go around. That's the story of ambition. Now. People don't just believe stories, they actually live stories. These stories that are given to us, there are parts of them that are, that are true. What's, the, what's so deceiving about these stories is that there are little bits and pieces of truth in them. Like there's a little bit of truth here, there's a half truth there, there's a, a half truth there. But we know from Jesus in the scriptures that a half truth is a full lie. And so if we are not aware of the stories that we are living into and living out of, we will be living in deception. If we are living, if we are not aware of the stories that we are living, not just believing cognitively, but living, then we will be tempted to and deceived into living in deception. Which is why every year we stop and do, we stop what we're doing and we celebrate Advent. We celebrate Advent because what Advent is and what Advent does is it reminds us of the story of redemption. It reminds us of the story of redemption. Here's what uh, author Tish Harrison Warren says. She says this, by practicing Advent, the church actually does the story of God, proclaiming it, enacting it, planting it deep into our hearts and our minds. The whole point of Advent is to get us into the scriptures and to get them into us. Advent invites us to pause, to reflect on the wonder of the promised Messiah, to be shaped by the long story of redemption. Advent calls us back to who we are by retelling us the story of which we are a part. It reminds us that we are a people, here it is, marked by longing, exiled in a world of tears, but we are not abandoned. We are waiting for redemption, for a wholeness that has come, yet is still coming just over the horizon, just beyond our grasp, by rushing to- but rushing towards us, minute by minute, day by day. So what is the story of Advent that we remind ourselves every year? It's a story of redemption. And the story of redemption asks and answers these exact same four questions. Why am I here? What went wrong? What's the solution? And what does a renewed future look like? So what is the story of redemption? Let's go through this. Question number one, why am I here? Why am I here? As a Christian, this is what we believe. We are here to co-rule with God for eternity. Do you believe that? Genesis 1 and 2, what happens? God has created all things. What's the pinnacle of his creation? Humanity. The best of his creation is humanity. He looked at us and he said, very good. And his, his, the creation mandate, it's what it's called, in Genesis 1, it says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over everything. Another translation I like to, it's actually my translation, it's not really a translation, it's a paraphrase, it's just this, God says, hey, go for it. I've created you, you're in my image, which means you therefore also have the potential to create, have, make, make cities, make art, make sport, make families, go for it. We are here to co-rule with God for eternity. The Westminster Catechism says this, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now glorifying God doesn't mean just sitting you know, in a chair and saying like, um, glory to God, glory to God. I mean it could mean that, but what does glorifying God mean? It means being and doing exactly what you were created to be and to do. In the scriptures, the mountains glorify God. You ever ask yourself, how do mountains glorify God? The birds glorify God. The fish glorify God. You ever stop and think about, well, how on earth do they do that? They're not like singing, glory be to God in the highest. Maybe they are in bird language, I don't know. But what they're doing is they are being and doing exactly what they were created to be and do. The mountains glorify God by being mountains. The birds glorify God by being birds. Humans, we glorify God. By being and doing exactly what we were created to be and to do. So what do you love? What are you gifted in? What are you you called to? What brings about renewal in your own context? Go for it. Why are we here? Why are we here? To co-rule with God for eternity. Humans were not meant to experience death or decay. That's not the design of Genesis one and two, to co-rule with God for eternity, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. If we forget the answer to this question, we will be so susceptible to answer this with something else. Oh, I'm just here to produce. Oh, I'm just here to die and pay taxes. Oh, I'm just here for myself. Oh, I'm just here to consume. Oh, I'm just here for fill in the blank. What a high calling Genesis one and two gives us. We are here. God has created us to be with him, to be with others, to co-rule with him for eternity, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's why we're here. Question number two, what went wrong? Genesis three, what went wrong? Satan, sin. See, a lot of people um, assume that humans is what went wrong. And that's not true. Humans were deceived by Satan. If we do not have a Satan in our story, we'll make our own heart Satan and we'll hate ourselves. If we do not have demons in our story, a spiritual warfare in our story, then we will make other people demons. We'll demonize other people and we'll say they're the enemy. We have one, we have one enemy, it's Satan. And it, Satan is actually a title, not a name. Did you know this? It means the accuser. It's actually the Satan, not Satan Satan is the accuser that's what he does he just accuses you did God really say are you sure are you sure God really said he loved you are you sure that God actually has your best interest in mind are you sure? And, and we as humans, we're susceptible. We're deceived. We play into it, sometimes willingly, sometimes unwitting, unwillingly. But what went wrong is that Satan wanted to destroy God's good world and so he, start, he, he started with God, the pinnacle of God's creation, humanity. Did God really say? That's what went wrong. The problem is that the father of lies who constantly said, did God really say? Does God really love you? Don't you think God is a little bit annoyed with you? Are you sure you can talk to God about that? You're pretty messed up. That's the accuser. That's what went wrong. Third question, what's the solution? Genesis 3, verse 15. Look with me at Genesis 3, verse 15. This is after um, uh, Eve and Adam have been deceived and have eaten the fruit of the tree that they were not supposed to eat and they, they heard the Lord walking in the garden, and they hid themselves, and the Lord asks, where are you? And then they said, I was naked, so I was afraid, so I hid, and, and then he said, why, why are you naked? Did you eat from the, or why are you afraid? What, did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to? And then Adam blames Eve, and then Eve blames the serpent, and then, and then God curses one thing. By the way, God does not curse humanity. That God does not curse humanity. God curses the serpent, and he curses the ground. That's it, but as he's talking to Eve, He says this in chapter 3, verse 15 I will put hostility between you. I'm sorry, he's talking to the serpent here. I will put hostility between you, serpent, and the woman, between your offspring or your seed or your inheritance and her seed, her offspring. He, the seed of the woman, will strike your head and you will strike his heel. What's the solution? the offspring of the woman to defeat the offspring of the serpent. This is what uh, scholars call the first gospel, Genesis 3.15. They call this the first gospel because this is the first instance where we have any inkling of the fact that there will be a person, a seed of the woman, a human being, who will finally and completely and totally destroy the enemy and the serpent, and he will be wounded while he does it. We, the, the hope and the solution is somebody who isn't deceived by the serpent, who passes the test, who, who, who it becomes, as Paul says, one mediator between God and man. And we know, Eve didn't know who that was. She said, okay, my, my son is going to be this, so maybe it's my next son, Cain. Well, that didn't work out too well. And then after a few generations, it was like, Abraham, Abraham's going to be the father of many nations. Like, this is it. Abraham will be the person in and through whom all the nations will be blessed. And we'll go back to the Genesis 1 and 2 ideal. And how does that work out? Doesn't work out great. Okay, his son Isaac, also not great. Okay, what about his son Jacob? Is he the seed of the woman that's going to crush the seed of the serpent? Also not great. He actually is more like the serpent than he is like God. How about any of his 12 sons, any of them? Just pick one of them. Nope, not a single one of his 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel, does it? Who is this seed of the woman that's going to crush the head of the seed of the serpent? David, King David. All right, we're on a good start. nobody really thinks much of him, but he's humble and he loves God and he's a warrior and he's already defeating all these serpent-like creatures like Goliath and the lion and the bear and all this stuff. He's gonna do it. He's ruling God's people with peace and justice. He is the seed of the woman who's gonna crush the seed of the serpent. How does he do? Not so great. Not a great ending. His son Solomon, definitely not. Any of the prophets? What are the prophets constantly saying? Yeah, we don't, it's not any of us. It's not you. We, in fact, we play into the stories and the lies of the serpent more, when we, more than we play into the truth of the living God. And then silence. 400 years of it. Maybe one of the guys who revolted against the Roman Empire, maybe he's the seed of the uh, woman who's gonna crush the seed of the serpent. And then who gets on the scene? What's the solution? God himself. God himself rolled up his sleeves, said, I will be for them what they cannot be on their own. He is the only solution. There is one mediator between God and man. The man, Jesus Christ, fully God, 100% God, fully man, 100% human. He crushed the head of the serpent by doing what was the most unexpected by actually coming as a as a baby as an infant and then actually dying see in order to defeat something you have to you have to absorb in order to defeat death you have to absorb it and that's exactly what Jesus did he absorbed death he said the way that I'm actually going to beat death is by dying because you can't beat death if you never die that's just avoiding death Jesus defeated death, and he gave us the solution, the redemption, the renewal of all things by himself, dying for us, and then being raised again to new life, meaning that he he defeated death. And what does the renewed future look like? Question four. It looks like Christ will come again. It looks like everything sad will be untrue. This is the renewed future. When Christ comes again in glory, he will take every wrong and he will make it right. Everything sad will come untrue and it will have been better for having once been lost and then found again. Death is swallowed up in victory. Isaiah 11 talks about the wolf dwelling with the lamb and, and all of these creatures and there's, like a, there's, a, there's a snake and there's all these things but a, a little child is leading them. There's the bear with the cow and the lion with the, with the calfling. Like all of these creatures, there's no death. Revelation 21 and 22, it's the new heavens and the new earth where God's reign and rule, God's kingdom has fully enveloped earth once and for all and it's filled with justice, it's filled with love, it's filled with mercy, it's filled with peace, it's filled with hope, it's filled with wholeness. Wholeness of your mind. You realize that our minds, our bodies, our spirits, we're broken right now. We are fractured. Imagine. This is why Paul says it's beyond comprehension. It's beyond imagination. It's because that one day we will be filled with all the fullness of God and it'll be beyond anything that we can ask or imagine. We can't imagine it right now. That's what's coming. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. What does the renewed future look like? It looks like us co-ruling with God for eternity. Being and doing exactly what we were created to be and do. In a world without death, darkness, brokenness, chaos. Those are the four questions of the story of redemption. Now, for some of you who are are visual learners like me, here's an image of the exact same story. And if you've been at AGC for any time now, hopefully these images look familiar. First, question number one, why are we here? Genesis one and two, God's presence, man's presence, heaven, which is God's domain, earth, which is human's domain, completely one. Genesis one and two, that's the ideal. We are here to co-rule with God for eternity. What went wrong? Image number two, separation, sin. Man was, ban- was banished from the, Im- from the presence of God. Heaven and earth are now separated. Eve, what was Eve doing? She was hoping and longing and waiting for the day. Just like everybody else in the Old Testament, waiting for the day when heaven and earth would be reunited again, which is exactly image three. What's the solution? The solution is Jesus. Bringing God's presence to us. Bringing heaven to us. Bringing the kingdom of heaven to us. Redeeming us. Being the ransom that we could not pay. And by faith and repentance, we get to enter into that kingdom of heaven right now. And we wait for the renewed future. Image number four. What's the renewed future look like? Looks like the beginning. The renewal of all things. Jesus will come back again and he will make every wrong right. And this first week of Advent is the week of hope. And what's interesting about hope is that, uh, I'm sorry, this first word hope is this, uh, what's interesting about hope, sorry, is that we enter into the story of the scriptures in Advent. When we, when we hope, we are saying, I, I want to actually back up and I want to go, I want to put myself in Eve's shoes as she heard this. I'm going to have a child, maybe a grandchild, and they will defeat evil once and for all. Now, in her life, she didn't see it. We enter into the story of Abraham and Sarah waiting and hoping that maybe, maybe through them the nations will be blessed. We will find this, this, the, the, the one who crushes the head of the serpent We enter into the story of David waiting and hoping in the Lord to rescue him from his enemies. In Advent, in the story of hope, we enter into the story of the prophets waiting and hoping for a day when the Spirit of God rests on all people, when God's presence will finally be with his people again. We enter the story of Elizabeth at the beginning of Luke. Elizabeth and her husband Zechariah, they were old, they were barren, they were promised a child, and this child was the one who was going to be the voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. And we also enter our own story because we are waiting for things. We are hoping for things. There is brokenness in our lives, in our stories. There's death. There's fractured relationships. There's pain. And by entering into the story of redemption, we know what the renewed future is gonna look like. And we know that true hope is not in my circumstances, it's actually in a person. Because Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. Here's two aspects of hope that we remember in Advent. First, hoping is waiting. The word for hope in Hebrew is the exact same word as the word for wait. Those who wait on the Lord will mount up with wings like eagles, they will run and not grow weary, they will walk and not faint. That word there is hope, those who hope in the Lord Think of all the, the Psalms as riddled with this word, wait, hope, wait, hope. Now, waiting is not passive. It's not like you're sitting in the, you know, the DMV waiting for something, right? Waiting is not passive. That's how we think of waiting. Waiting, according to the Bible, is actually active. It's anticipating. Here's a few examples. Uh, you know, It's holiday season, so maybe you have a guest coming over or, you, ha- or you're, you were going to somebody else's house and you were the guest. When you're waiting for a guest to come over, whether it's for a cup of tea or for a few days, what are you doing? you're cleaning, you're vacuuming. If they're gonna stay in your guest bed, if you have a guest bed, then you're gonna wash the sheets, you're gonna vacuum that room. Your waiting is not doing nothing, it's actually doing something. Here's another example. Last night I was watching some football and there was a wide receiver who turned after his route and he sat there waiting for the ball to come to him and it was almost an interception. That's bad waiting, if you play football, you know that you're not supposed to do that. When you turn around and you're done throughout, you just keep moving, you move towards the ball, you wait, you anticipate. Waiting for something, you're not just sitting there doing nothing, you're actually going towards something. You're working, you're anticipating. Think about a, a, a woman who is pregnant, right? There are a lot of babies at AGC, so there's a lot of pregnant women at AGC. So w- waiting is not doing nothing. I'm shocked at how busy you are when you're waiting for nine months you're doing something, you're getting the nurseries ready, making sure you have the clothes, your family comes into town, you have this thing going on, you have that thing going on, you're waiting, you're planning, you're going to the hospital. Some of you are so good at waiting, Dan and Vic Steinhoff, that you're actually looking at elementary schools, middle schools, and high schools that your kids are gonna go to and they're not even born yet. That is biblical waiting right there, well done. That's biblical waiting, it's anticipating. That's biblical hope, it's anticipating. It's recognizing the future, and planning, and anticipating, and prepping, and working, and being active in the present. Hoping is waiting. We know the future. We know that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. So in the meantime, we hope. We wait. Second, hope is also not optimism. Optimism is, it focuses on circumstances. Hope acknowledges the reality of life. Optimism tries to just look at how everything is good. Pessimism just tries to look at how everything is bad. Hope is neither of those. There's this famous scholar, and he said uh, Leslie Newbegin, and he's a missiologist, and he said, "I am neither a pessimist nor an optimist. Jesus Christ has risen from the dead." In hope, we don't not we don't say like oh everything will be all roses in, in the end and it is right now. Hope is actually only hope if you're able to acknowledge the darkness. You cannot hope if you do not acknowledge that something is wrong. Things are not as they should be. There is death in this world. There is chaos in this world. There is broken relationships in this world. True biblical hope is saying, like with Eve, with Abraham, with David, with Elizabeth, with all of the characters who have gone before, you look at the darkness and you say, this, this is not okay. I am in pain. The people I love are in pain. It seems that the wicked are just running Everything. It seems that every, every day something bad happens. It seems like I can't get enough time to get my head above water. And hope doesn't stop there. Hope says, and I know, I know, that because Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, he will come back and he will make all of those wrongs right. Paul says that Christians grieve but not like those without hope. Christians look at the fact, we have an answer. In fact, we're the only people, by the way, Christians are the only people who have an answer to why everything is as bad as it is, because there's a real enemy, Satan, and there's real sin in this world, and sometimes we participate in it, and sometimes it just has its way with us. Yet we grieve, but we don't grieve as without hope because we know that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. Here's another quote by, by Tish. She says this, Tish Harrison Warren. We Christians believe that Christ will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. This is God's definitive response to the deepest longings of the human soul. It is our hope that truth, beauty, and goodness will last and that evil, sorrow, and death will not. And so, we wait. We know the story, and so we wait. We know why we're here, so we wait. We know what went wrong, so we wait. We know the solution. Jesus Christ has come into the world to save sinners. Christ has died. Christ has risen. And we know the renewed future. Christ will come again. The undoing of cancer. The dismantling of injustice. The redemption of the weak and the vulnerable. The regeneration of all of creation, creation. The weeping that will give way into laughter and eventually the death of death. That is our hope. Jesus came before is going to come again. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. And to that end, we hope. Let's pray.
0: Thanks again for listening, and we pray this was a blessing to you. If you have any questions or comments about what you heard, our email is info at InkeningGospel.com, or you can find us on social media at inkeninggospel